to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. And then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said to him, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is... There were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up and three years, six months, there was a famine over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There also were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up and drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off a cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. You can never go home. I mean, that's a saying, right? I applied for a senior minister's position one time at a church where I had originally been the youth minister some years before. I got a letter back from the chairman of the board politely declining my request to be considered. And he wrote, thank you for your interest, but we are looking for someone with a bit more maturity. Uh, well, what, what is that supposed to mean? Same thing happened to, to my father when he applied to a church, the church that interestingly enough, had been the one my grandfather had vacated to start the children's home in Mexico. After 10 months waiting, without word, he finally got a letter back from the church saying that they were looking to find someone older. When my grandfather heard it, he was really angry. And he told my dad, he said, you need to write back to them and tell them that you've aged considerably since you first sent your application to them <laughs> 10 months ago. 
Going back home, it's difficult, I think, because the people back home, well, I mean, they know you too well, don't they? Or at least they did at one point. I mean, they remember when you had zits and braces. They know about the time you brought a live chicken and a duffel bag to a school assembly and set it loose. They remember you as a kid who couldn't sit still, who, who couldn't make heads or tails of geometry, who thought fashion was beat-up work boots and flannel shirts. They know about you. They know your dark secrets. They know you used to sport a mullet. They know you once owned a Barry Manilow record. Speaking totally hypothetically here. They saw you in a dress in that play in high school. I mean, just, they know too much. I mean, that's, I think, what people think the whole you can't go home again thing means. Your hometown people, I mean, they just know too much about you. But people don't often stop to consider that maybe you can never go home again because you know too much about home. I mean, maybe the part of the reason that you can never go home again or because, as Jesus tells us in the gospel this morning, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown is because the prophet knows just what kind of stuff lurks there behind the nostalgia. Yes, of course, they know you, but your hometown has plenty of skeletons of its own, doesn't it? Latent racism, homophobia, and misogyny, the, the, the deck stacked in favor of those at the top, the inequity, the corruption, the violence, the, the seamy underbelly of every village, town, and city in the world. I mean, if you come from someplace, chances are you know where the bodies are buried. And if that kind of thing bothers you enough, the thought of returning to it doesn't sound particularly appealing especially if they know you know all the secrets and aren't, you know, the type to keep your mouth shut about it. I got a message one time, just a few years back, pointing me to an article about the popularity of the KKK in Michigan in the 1920s. Which I, I guess I kind of vaguely knew about, but it was an interesting article. And then my mom wrote me and she said, remember that time when grandma found those KKK robes in great granny Proud's dresser after she died? Um, no, I don't remember that at all. And I thought, what are you, what are you doing to me here? My, 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 my granny used to rock me in a rocking chair in her room and give me whorehound candy and sing trust and obey to me. She had KKK robes in her dresser? You gotta be, I mean, you gotta be kidding me. She, you could, don't quit messing with my history. And my mom said, well, I, you know, I think they belong to great grandpa, not to granny. And I thought, well, that's okay, I guess. I don't remember him. He was dead before I ever showed up on the scene. But still, I mean, as you get older, you realize that there aren't really any perfect people Everybody has secrets, things that 
They don't want anybody else to know about things that the rest of the world doesn't suspect. I learned after that exchange with my mom all over again in one brief message that everybody has much more complicated lives than they're willing to let on for public consumption. And the past isn't nearly as wonderful as our pastel-colored memories of it, is it? I have a confession to make. I, I loved high school. So, bear with me here for a minute. It came as something of a shock to me reading through the comments on the Facebook page dedicated to my high school reunion to learn that many of the people I went to school with hated it. Now, I brought this to my wife's attention, and she said, you know, a lot of people hated high school. The things that you remember about it aren't remembered nearly as fondly by everybody else. You remember those days as some of the best times of your life, but many people remember those days as the absolute low point of their existence. I get that. I guess that's why appeals to return to a, a simpler time, say Ward and June Cleaver's America of the 1950s. That's why those appeals don't sound like such a good idea to just everybody. Black people, the poor, women, LGBTQ people, a lot of folks didn't make it out of that time unscathed. Heck, a lot of folks didn't even make it out of the Elysian fields of that period of American nostalgia with their lives. But we need to be careful when anyone's too enthusiastic about returning to the glory days. Because the glory days are almost always littered with somebody else's hopes and dreams. The past can be a graveyard where people bury the bodies deemed too inconvenient and too shameful to remember. So, it's not just about the fact that home knows so much about you, but that you know so much about home. And I think that's part of the situation that Jesus finds himself in as he starts his ministry in Luke's gospel by doing this little hometown tour to kick everything off. And things, they started just fine. I mean, if you remember from last week, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads a messianic text from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then, if you remember, Jesus rolls up the scroll, gives it back, sits down. Everybody's sort of gaping at him. And then Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. <laughs> but that's pretty impressive, right? It's like, it's like hitting a grand slam in your first at bat back in your own ballpark. 
See, we, we, we knew this kid was going to be good. We saw it from the very first t-ball game. Huge potential. Five-tool player. And Luke says something like that. that he says that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. So everything's going swimmingly up till now, right? But you know Jesus, he can't leave well enough alone. He's got to keep going when keeping silent would just preserve the peace. Unfortunately for that calm little burrow in the Galilean backwater of Nazareth, Jesus has no investment in a peace achieved without truth. As far as Jesus is concerned, there is no such thing as peace absent truth. Peace without truth is merely a ceasefire. Biblical peace, biblical shalom, requires truth. It requires justice. The beloved community in which the poor, the imprisoned, the disabled, and the oppressed are allowed to live as full participants to be celebrated and no longer as nuisance just to be tolerated. But things really start to go south for Jesus when he reads only part of the passage from Isaiah. In Isaiah, what comes immediately after the Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor part is, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Well, God's vengeance? Uh, against who? Against Israel's enemies, the ones who've had a hand in the oppression of God's people. In other words, Isaiah is asserting Israel's place of favor in God's eyes. I mean, these are God's people, and God's going to take care of God's people against all comers. It was simple, really. But Jesus doesn't read that part. He leaves it out, conspicuously out. And you might say, well, so, so what? Well, it might seem only like a slight nuance, but it makes an awful lot of difference. And basically, Jesus throws open the doors to everyone by not repeating the vengeance of God part. All the poor, the imprisoned, the disabled, and the oppressed, not just to those who have Hebrew surnames. And that's a hard word for the hometown crowd to hear. He's, he's not supposed to just let anybody in through the turnstiles. In fact, Jesus knows it's going to be tough after he says it, so he, or, or fails to say it, and so he anticipates the hometown crowd's negative response to his universalizing of the passage by confirming that despite what they think, they're not getting any hometown discounts in God's new reign. Now, Jesus knows the folks from his old stomping grounds. He knows they believe they should get some kind of special promo code because of their status as God's children. Remember, they say, well, wait a minute, you, you are healing in Capernaum and not here, right? The, they only receive, uh, the only receptive audience for the prophet Elijah is in Gentile Syria? What's that all about? This, 
This exchange might make more sense for modern Americans today if Luke had Jesus say that, well, remember, Elijah's only receptive audience came from what is present-day Muslim Syria. I mean, you can see what Jesus is stirring up here, right? Well, needless to say, it didn't go over very well. God dealing grace to everybody, and not just to the Jews. What is that? I mean, there's no way you can win Mensch of the Year down at the Nazareth Rotary Club saying stuff like that. These people are incensed. They're furiously looking for a handy rail upon which they can ride them, not only out of town, but over the cliff. Talk to us like that. Listen, pal, we, we, we knew you when you were still figuring out which end of the razor to use. Pertinent little upstart. But see, Jesus doesn't spare them. He loves them. He tells them the truth. He names their prejudices out loud calls them out for assuming that when God's busy choosing up sides, that they're inevitably going to be the first ones picked. And the problem here is that Jesus tells the truth about not only these people he knows so well, but also about God's new realm. It's big. It's expansive. It has room for everybody. The doors get thrown open wide, and everybody gets a pass to the dance floor. I mean, not only the people who drive Buicks, but the people who live in Buicks. Not only the people who hold the keys to the kingdom, but the people who live behind locked doors, who even in their wildest imaginations never even had access to the keys. Not only those people who own the panoramic views, but the people who never get a chance to see those views. Not only the people at the top of the heap, but the people upon whose backs the heap is built poor, the imprisoned, the disabled, the oppressed, all the people who live on the wrong side of the tracks. Now, why is that a problem? Why, why, why do Jesus' boyhood neighbors get so bent out of shape when they hear this? Here's something that it took me a long time to learn. Grace is offensive. But you didn't know that. I mean, it, but if you think about it, 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 it's, it, it's hard to think of somebody else getting a break that you don't think they deserve. Right? Kind of got that built into the way we deal with people who, who live without in our society. They don't deserve that. Whole systems of thought about how we deal with one another are built on top of the assumption that I'm pretty sure there's somebody out there who's getting something that they don't deserve, and I would rather nobody get anything. I took, um, I took an advanced Hebrew college or class in college. It was just me and one other guy. And, I mean, it was, it's, it's hard to hide with two people in class. But for a good part of the class, there weren't two of us. 
there was just one of us, me. Because the other guy's mom had died, and he got caught up in this underage beer sting at the 7-Eleven where he was the night manager. Police sent in like a 19-year-old kid with gray hair to buy beer, and my classmate got busted. So he was gone a lot during that semester, leaving me to have to sort of answer for my own translation of the Book of Ruth every day. Just me. Thanks a heap. But see, that wasn't the worst part of it. I found out that the professor was going to give the guy an A because he'd worked hard when he was there, and the professor had pity on him. Well, look, I mean, I felt sorry for the guy, too, but not enough to just look past the fact that he was going to get the same grade I did. I mean, after all, I'd done most of the work. And so I, you know, confronted my professor about the injustice of a system that would give the guy who'd done the work the same grade as the guy who'd been out most of the semester. And he didn't even flinch. My professor said, what do you care? He needs a break. It doesn't make your grade worth any less just because he got it too. I mean, find something real to be indignant about, like, oh, I don't know, an honest guy getting jerked around by the police department. That's worth a little righteous indignation, don't you think? Well, since you put it that way, it's an enormously important lesson in grace for me. Of course, I felt like an idiot, but I'm so glad he helped me to give to, to, he helped to give me a better lens through which to see the world. Because people used to being on top generally don't like the idea that the folks who've historically been on the bottom are finally going to join them in the fresh air at the pinnacle of the heap. Paul uh, Paulo Freire, the famous liber, uh, liberation theoretician, once said, what happens with the establishment of the new status quo is that the oppressors don't find themselves freed. On the contrary, they'll feel as if they're being oppressed. That's because to them, who are experienced in being oppressors, everything that isn't their old right to oppress is seen by them as oppression. Any restriction to their exclusivity in the name of equal opportunity is seen as a direct attack on their rights. Jesus goes home and he kicks a hornet's nest of hospitality and inclusion, one that won't finally settle down until the powers and principalities, the folks at the very top, finally get their way and they push him over the cliff on Good Friday. That's where it's all headed, even from the beginning. Apparently, in the reign of God that Jesus announces, that's what love requires. According to Terry Eagleton, the measure of your love in Jesus' view is whether or not they kill you. Christians who are not an affront to the powers that be, so he suggests, are not being faithful to his mission. Going home, opening the doors, pretty dangerous. 
I mean, you never know who just might wander in and make themselves comfortable at the table. Indeed, it may be more dangerous when the people sitting around the table look up and they see who gets invited to pass through the velvet rope line. I mean, that can cause a big stink. Just ask Jesus. You open the doors too wide and you might just get done to death. But if you do, if you do catch the wrath of the powers that be because of whom you invite to take a seat at this table, well, you'll be in excellent company. In fact, you might finally find a home worth going home to. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.